Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. All eyes on the UK tonight as British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is at the exit gate, but he vows to fight on. Frankly, Mr Speaker, the job of a Prime Minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going. Tarnished Leo Varadkar will not face criminal charges over leak of GP pay deal contract. The government lost the Dáil majority this evening as Donegal Fine Gael TD Joe McHugh resigns the Fine Gael whip and later Claire Brock speaks to a father and son about the effects of childhood obesity. If you were looking on the internet for to do some research to find there wasn't a lot of information out there. You know you get your standard pamphlet and your food pyramid and stuff but it, it goes further than that. As always do get in touch with your comments it's hashtag Tonight's VMTV. First tonight, in an emerging story this evening, the Tánaiste Leo Varadkar will not face criminal charges over the leak of a GP pay deal contract. Well, joining me here in studio tonight is Group Head of News at Media House Ireland, Kevin Doyle, former Irish ambassador and author Ray Bassett, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, and Social Democrat uh, TD Gary Gannon. You're all very welcome to the programme. Um, Kevin, we'll start with you. Uh, this is the position that Leo Radker has taken all along, that he would not be prosecuted by the DPP. Does this draw a line under it, do you think? I think it largely does, to be honest, um, because if you look at the statement that he's released tonight, he acknowledges it that it happened. He did leak the document. Um, but he says in it that he had always maintained that these were false allegations. Now, that's a lot more bullish than what Leo Varadkar has been saying before this because he was always contrite for actually having leaked the document to a friend of the GP contract that was worth millions um, and he made a dull statement on it and he has repeated in the media time and time again um, that he shouldn't have done it, that it was a mistake and that he was sorry for it. But tonight we're hearing things like, I said all along these were false allegations, which is a, a it's it's a different twist on it. So I think if you go back to that big row with Pierce Doherty in the Dáil a couple of weeks ago, where Pierce Doherty told him that maybe he should be a little bit uh, back in his box, shall we say, when this was hanging over him, well, it's not hanging over him anymore. So he's coming right out of that box. Do you still think he is damaged from it? I think it's it. The damage is there. It's been done, but the scale of damage now is very small compared to if the DPP had decided that this should be tested in court. So even say he never got a conviction, but say it was to go to court, I think Leo Varadkar would have had to stand down because that court case would most likely have come after he was due to be back in, in Taoiseach, as Taoiseach in December. The idea of a Taoiseach having to go down to the courts, the circus that would have went around that, um, I mean, look at what's happening in Britain. It wouldn't be 100 miles off that if that's where we ended up and Fine Gael couldn't have let that happen. So he wouldn't be Taoiseach again. He will be Taoiseach again and he can reshuffle that cabinet now without fear or favour. Uh, so, Timmy, the way is clear. He's all set to become Taoiseach now in December. Yeah, well, that, that's obviously the deal that exists between the parties in government. Um, however, the leadership of Fine Gael or any party remains uh, the remit of the members of the party. And it would be hard to see why Fine Gael wouldn't continue to, to show confidence uh, in their leader on the basis of the decision of the DPP. So um, I think he has rightly, or did rightly accept all along that what he did was unwise, was wrong. Um, shouldn't have done it, but did it ever reach a threshold that it could be considered a criminal act? A lot of people didn't think it did, um, and the DPP certainly didn't think it did, so I think there the, the matter rests. All right, well, let's move over to London, where I was going to say it was all kicking off, but it's been kicking off for 
days now. Uh, but British Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains under pressure tonight amid reports that current Cabinet members are urging him to resign. For more on this, we're going to cross over to our London correspondent, Ollie Barrett, who is standing by for us at Westminster. Well, Ollie, what a day. Can you sum up the atmosphere uh, at Westminster for me first? What a day. Probably the most turbulent day in British politics since yesterday, I would say. It's been a febrile atmosphere uh, in and around the British capital. Because of all the resignations that we've been seeing from Boris Johnson's government, I think there was a sense that by the time we got to this point of the evening, that Boris Johnson may have already been forced out or at least uh, accepted that he would have to resign. There have been cabinet ministers in number 10 this afternoon and this evening. Many of them who've been previously loyal to him for a long time have been telling him that they believe that it is now time for him to go. He is, as of right now, defiant. He says he's hanging on in the job. He's telling allies he wants to get on with a new economic plan for his government, along with his new chancellor, Nadim Zahawi. It really has been a turbulent day in which Boris Johnson also had to face MPs' questions at Prime Minister's questions in that weekly session. He then had to spend two hours being questioned by MPs at the Liaison Committee, which brings together the heads of various select committees in Westminster. So it's been fraught with danger. As of right now, though, Boris Johnson remains in post and is telling allies he intends to remain there. He very much seems to be digging in and turning on those, uh, Ollie, who turned on him. The very latest news is that he has sacked uh, Michael Gove, who we understood told him that he had to go. That's right. Michael Gove is uh, considered a very senior member of his cabinet, currently, or it was until a few moments ago, the levelling up secretary in Boris Johnson's government. The levelling up agenda is supposedly one of the key planks of Boris Johnson's manifesto. And some Conservative MPs who are loyal to Boris Johnson will say that's an example of him being able to take control, to show that he's at the head of government and can take strong decisions against those who've been disloyal to him in some way. Critics of Boris Johnson will say this is a crazy move that shows he's really going to have some huge political beasts on his back benches now, which can cause him danger on a daily basis for however long he hangs on to power. What is the position of those cabinet ministers, including, we believe, his newly appointed chancellor, who went into him this evening and said, "It's the, the game is up, it's time to go, Boris. Surely their positions are untenable. certainly in doubt. And I think we are expecting that over the coming hours and days, again, if Boris Johnson remains in post that long, that we will see more resignations. I think the expectation in Downing Street is that the resignations haven't finished yet. I think Downing Street is trying to be optimistic tonight and, and feeling that it can fill these roles. It can move what Boris Johnson described as ambitious and talented Conservative MPs from the back benches into some of these key positions. But there are so many resignations now, up to 42, I think, by the last count a few minutes ago from Boris Johnson's government, that it really is difficult to fill all of those posts. And therefore, it's difficult to show that he can run a functioning government with functioning departments led by uh, ministers who have the requisite experience so um, Boris Johnson defiant, but very much not out of the woods. And there will be continued concerted attempts by those MPs that want him gone to remove him. Uh, what are the next steps now for the 1922 committee? Because I think the focus is really going to turn to them, isn't it, Ollie? It is. They agreed today that they're not going to change the rules immediately, which would allow an earlier than expected leadership challenge. What they're doing instead is moving ahead with elections to the executive of the 1922 committee. Now, what may well happen is that the executive will then be packed with anti-Boris Johnson figures from the Conservative Party, not least because the arithmetic in the Conservative Party at the moment just means that there are a lot of them around. And if that is the case, then they may well choose to change the rules of the 1922 committee as soon as next week. And that would allow the possibility of a fresh confidence vote in Boris Johnson uh, very quickly indeed. Under the current rules, it's not allowed for around another 11 months from now, but that could change very soon. 
All right, uh, Ollie, we'll leave it there. We may come back to you before the end of the programme if anything uh, dramatic changes. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, journalist Ella Whelan also uh, joins me on the line from London. Ella, I'm going to come to you uh, shortly, but I just want to go to my panel uh, for a moment. Kevin, 42 MPs is the very latest number. We literally have to check it every minute because that's how quickly it changes. Is Boris Johnson a dead man walking, or could he, in true Boris Johnson style, still wriggle out of this? Oh, how many times have newspapers written Boris on the brink? I mean, there is a limit to it, and this does feel like the limit. But I, I was reminded today of, do you remember when Theresa May was eventually forced out and she put up a bit of a fight for a while and she stood at the rostrum outside 10 Downing Street and, and just broke down and started crying and, and it literally ended in tears for Theresa May. Boris seems determined to go down in flames. And that is where this is heading because we taught last night, he couldn't survive the night. Now here we are tonight, he's going to make midnight. Um, will he survive tomorrow? So Boris is gone, he's goosed, he's done. But will he still be here next week? Maybe. Mm, quite possibly. Uh, Ella, after all of the scandals, I suppose, that has engulfed Boris Johnson in particular uh, and this government, why do you think this is the one that seems to be tipping him closest to the edge? Well, it's hard to know because, you know, it's not, you don't want to do down the seriousness of sexual harassment allegations, which is what this kind of hinges off of. But in terms of political failures, uh, there have been many more substantial and kind of long reaching ones in relation to, you know, the mistakes he made throughout the pandemic, thing, you know, in relation to Partygate, uh, some of his failures in terms of broader political things like levelling up. And so it, feel, it can, I think, probably to people outside of the Westminster bubble, this can feel like a bit of a cheap move. I was in for a hospital appointment this morning and lots of the nurses were saying, for God's sake, why won't they just leave Boris alone? There's a, there's a, you know, and, and these aren't people who are huge fans of the Conservative Party, but there is a bit of a sense, I think, outside of uh, central London, that this is all just kind of parliamentary uh, musical chairs and sorts of games. And I think it's really not good. That could play into Boris's hand because, you know, it's been reported that he wants to frame this in terms of a parliament versus the people thing because of his large mandate yeah. in 2019. And I'm wondering... And it is hard to, hard to argue against that. Uh, I'm wondering, Ray, is that what uh, Boris is thinking, that the public perhaps don't feel the same way about this story that, that politicians do? Because it is so interesting to watch somebody cling on like this, notwithstanding the fact that so many people within his own party think his time is up. Where does that sense of entitlement come from? Well, it's, it's come through to all his career. And it's kind of a sad ending to somebody who has it's fairly big achievements, if you look in a historical sense. I mean, to be mayor of London, to, to essentially deliver be, be partly responsible for delivering Brexit to win a, a, a huge majority. He reminds me a bit of Charlie Hawhey, who had huge achievements, but the manner of his going took an awful lot of uh, the gloss off that. I think in the end, all politicians that I ever worked with told me their first objective, their, you know, they, if you're not elected, you can do nothing. So if the feeling is that Boris Johnson has become an electoral liability, and certainly the, the by-elections show that and the polls seem to show it, um, that in the end, self-interest is often a very, very strong motivating factor in every walk of life. And I think there may be a time when the accumulation of all the, the, the sins of Boris Johnson have got to the stage where the, yeah. the party and uh, the membership feel that they'd be better off without him, that he's a minus rather than a plus. And in the end, it'll be plus or minus decision by the, by the Conservative Party. Yeah, and it was interesting to hear Keir Starmer today, Ella, I thought, saying anybody who quits now hasn't a shred of integrity, that there's been real damage done to the Conservative Party and to those who remain uh, loyal to Boris Johnson. Do you think that is playing on their minds this evening? Do you think there will be those further big, high-profile uh, cabinet resignations? And will that push him? Well, you couldn't pay me enough money to be a Conservative MP tonight because there is just no winning. Either you jump ship and you do look like someone who's done it to last minute. I mean, it, it, it is a serious question. Why now? Um, and if you stay, you either look like you're being... And in fact, actually, the only people who are really actively being loyal in favour of Boris Johnson is Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, two politicians who don't exactly have a huge amount of uh, public respect, let's put it that way. Um, and the rest of them, I think, are kind of just staying behind and hedging their 
hedging their bets. And the later it gets into the night and the closer it perhaps gets towards either resignation or a kick out the door, they start to look worse. But I mean, I think, you know, probably the comparison between Hawhey and Johnson is a good one because you have there, you know, two men who very much approach politics in terms of personality, but also, you know, whether it's allegations of corruption, but a sense of a kind of arrogance. And I think that's come back to bite Boris Johnson in the backside because his stand now continuing to remain in position seems less principled and more just like whether he wants to go down in flames or he thinks someone's going to swoop in and save him. It's all, it, as the night creeps okay. on, it's getting more and more excruciating to watch. Um, Timmy, is a UK without Boris Johnson, a Prime Minister, a good thing for Ireland? Well, it's always difficult for a politician from another jurisdiction to comment on who should or shouldn't lead. But I think Boris Johnson's premiership uh, has not been helpful for Ireland. That's being honest. Some people uh, say that's the understatement. Well, well, well Ray and I, I'm conscious that Ray and I might have a difference of opinion in relation to certain matters around Brexit. But the reality is uh, that Brexit wouldn't have happened without the intervention of Boris Johnson. Um, the way in which he his intervention in the campaign... Uh, which I think was disingenuous, quite frankly, the indication that there would have been a lot more money for the health service, etc. Um, he managed to sway public opinion in a manner that got it over the line, I think. Um, I think the duplicitous way he has acted in relation to uh, the Northern Protocol um, has been you know, a signal to anybody who understands and appreciates the rule of law uh, and the understanding of international agreements and the way in which he has effectively cast that aside has been very damaging, I think, to the British people uh, and to the United Kingdom, quite frankly. It's made life a lot more difficult for us and other members of the European Union. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, if Boris Johnson moves on relatively quickly, uh, it, it should help matters. I cannot imagine there being anybody else that will, be, will play politics in the way that he has done. You don't think that? Because there is, Gary, you know, a school of thought that would say that perhaps if somebody like Liz Truss, you know, got into the position, that actually the EU only thought they were dealing with somebody who was difficult in Boris Johnson, that perhaps what we had with Boris might actually be better than what we could have with somebody like Liz Truss in terms of trying to negotiate around the protocol. I think Boris Johnson's premiership has been a catastrophe for all who came within his aura of sleaze and all of the consequences that happened with that. There is nobody like Boris Johnson. He has a hard neck, an absence of shame. You cannot communicate, you cannot negotiate with a person like that. What you're seeing today is I'm just seeing simply clinging on for power because all somebody understands like that is self-preservation. So his removal is a good thing for everybody, be that the Irish people or the British people who suffer as a consequence of the fallacies that he's flung around about Brexit. Um, when you think about the hard neck he's displayed in relation to the protocol, the fact he can't negotiate with him, neither Europe or Ireland can, their relationship. A lot of people that might be watching tonight thinking, we knew a lot of this about Boris Johnson yeah. and he still won an absolutely humongous mandate. Mm. I mean, having a hard neck mm. is not something that's new when it comes to Boris Johnson, is yeah. it, Kevin? Well, he's a great campaigner, yeah. a mm. terrible prime minister, and that there's lots of politicians that are like that who are brilliant on the pulpit. They can tour the country and they can get everybody into their ideas and into their rhetoric, and then they actually have to go and do the job. And it's clear that Boris Johnson couldn't, couldn't actually operate number 10, never mind the whole of the UK. So that's where it all falls apart from. Um, if he does go, and a lot of people think, OK, it's not today, it's not tomorrow, it will be soon, sooner rather than later, Ray. Who would you like to see replace him? Who would be good for Ireland? Um, Do we, are well, we to assume there would be another Brexiteer? Personally, I'd, li I'd like Michael Gove, but Michael Gove is not in the running. And it is unlikely that, you know, people like Jeremy Hunt's going to win. I mean, sometimes we he get... He's the book he's favourite at the moment, isn't he? No, he, it, I saw that uh, the, uh, the opinion among Conservative members, and remember it's Conservative members who will vote this, and Boris got two-thirds of the vote. Uh, I, I think that um, anybody who, who appeared to try and thwart Brexit will not will find it very difficult to lead the Conservative Party because... So for you, that's why Hunt's out? I think Hunt is out. And also, you know, the, the reaction to Brexit, including by Ireland and by uh, the European Union, essentially destroyed the pro-European or the, or the soft centre of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party is a different party now than it was when it was being led by David Cameron. That So you've got a much tougher um, group. Uh, I think that... I, I honestly think that... You know, there's been a lot of digging in and um, 
maybe a change of leadership, even if it was Liz Trust, it's an opportunity for people to, to, um, to, to show a bit more flexibility. I remember when David Trimble was in deep trouble in the North. There was, there was rumours or there was certain implication that Sinn Féin would give nothing because they knew that the DUP were coming in. Now, the same with, 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 with both sides in, 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 on the protocol. The actual substance are very, very close to each other. A few, you know, movements on both sides may be enough to get it. And new leadership may be able to do that. So I wouldn't really write off it as a, as a possible minus, even if somebody like Liz Truss came in. Um, Ella, I'm wondering what you would think, um, because I know there's a sort of a strange phenomenon within the Conservative Party that often the person that sort of comes out publicly and attacks the person who is the current leader doesn't end up with the leadership themselves. You know, it, they have to play all factions of the Conservative Party uh, quite cleverly. So who do you think is in a position to do that? Uh, well, the poll mentioned from Conservative members showed that Ben Wallace was taking the lead. I mean, I don't have a huge amount to say about him as a politician. Nobody does because he's a bit of a, um, you know, someone who's come out of the blue. I mean, Liz Truss would really, Irish people like to be dealing with Liz Truss. She can't even pronounce T-shirt. I mean, that's a cheap mark, but, you know, she's she's not very impressive. And I think you have to remember that from uh, the perspective of here in the UK, you know, you've got cost of living crisis. We've had earlier this week on Monday, um, drivers going out and bringing motorways across the country to a standstill with, of protesting fuel prices. You have a war in Ukraine, you know, what, whatever's going on with Russia. There are very serious political questions that need to be answered. And the key thing is that if Boris stays, that doesn't change. If he goes, that doesn't change. You know, Jeremy Hunt, Liz Truss, and these people are not going to have a radically different political programme to Boris Johnson. If there was a snap election and Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, Party got in, that wouldn't change either. So I can tell you that for most people watching the telly tonight or listening to the radio, outside of the gossipy rooms in Westminster, this really looks like a kind of, and it feels like a pathetic distraction, a game of Westminster musical chairs, and it's going to annoy people dreadfully, whatever happens. Uh, Kevin, do you think uh, there is a chance that he will call a snap election? I mean, it was sort of suggested earlier today, perhaps as a bit of a threat, if I'm going down Conservative Party, I'll take all of you down with me. Well, listening to people tonight, that the narrative from his, the few people he has left, is more that if you change leader, there will have to be an election because that's not democratic. Now, that doesn't tie in, but of course, Boris has says things and it does different things. That doesn't tie in. He'd no problem taking over from Theresa May and not having an election for, for six or seven months. But he's, he's dangling that idea there that this instability is going to lead to an election. So let's all just calm down and bring it back together. Well, we will watch and wait. Uh, we'll bring you any further developments before the end of the programme because this really is uh, an ever-breaking story. My thanks to Ray and to Ella. The rest of the panel will be staying with me to discuss the future of Irish media and more trouble for the government as Donegal TD Joe McHugh votes against the government this evening. Welcome back. Now, my panel has stayed with me to discuss the future of Irish media, but first to another big story today that sent ripples through the Irish government. Donegal TD Joe McHugh resigned the Fine Gael party whip in a move which saw the government lose its majority in the dial tonight. Well, Kevin, I mean, did that come as a surprise to people? Were they expecting Joe McHugh, who's of course said he isn't going to run in the next uh, election, but they, did they expect him to resign? I think within Fine Gael, it's probably met more with sadness than surprise because Joe is seen as one of the good guys. He's generally very well liked. I think the, the panel here would probably agree around Leinster House. Um, so it, the fact that he announced already that he was retiring from politics means the shackles are off. So he can pretty much do what he wants uh, from here on in. He doesn't need the votes, but the fact that he doesn't need the votes of constituents in Donegal was part of the reason that maybe some would have thought that he would have stuck with the government. He would have seen out his time 
within Fine Gael and not created this rift, which he has now created. So he's resigned the whiff because he was going to be <coughs> sacked uh, or, or have it removed from him. But it's, I, I was actually speaking to him just this afternoon on the phone when the bells started to ring in Leinster House and it had that the bells are tolling kind of moment when he was going down to do the vote. And I, I think it, it hurt him a lot that he had to do it, but he clearly felt that the package that he wanted for people affected in his constituencies and the stories that have been coming to his constituency office, not just for the last few months, but for years, that he couldn't in good conscience go in and have a two-hour debate and then push through a 2.7 billion euro scheme and that just the to people be clear, weren't happy about. For viewers, he voted against uh, the government uh, when it came to the legislation that would underpin the MICA redress scheme. Yeah, so this is Darrell O'Brien, the housing minister, has, after a much back and forth, and there's been variation. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. ...of this scheme, but tonight effectively is a big step on the way to the, what is going to be the final scheme. But the people in those houses say there is still a raft of problems. It's much better than where they started, but there's a raft of problems. They're not happy with it. They wanted dozens of amendments made to that legislation. The government decided it has to be done before the summer. We're pushing it through in two hours. And that was, I think, the final straw for Joe McHugh. Um, Timmy Dooley, look, the government TDs in Donegal are under huge, huge pressure. So there isn't obviously going to be a Fine Gael, um, uh, candidate in Joe McHugh anymore. We don't know who will run there. But the Fianna Fáil TD, Charlie McConlog, who is from Inishon, where there are huge, huge issues with Micah, he is under real threat now because there's a lot of people who feel that you didn't get the Micah redress scheme right. Yeah, he is. And, 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 and clearly Joe McHugh felt that pressure. Um, and I think when you look, and I, I would agree with Kevin, he, Joe, Joe would be seen as a very likeable person. And, and he wasn't under the pressure necessarily uh, of the voters because he's not going to face them again. So obviously, from his perspective, it was frustration, and I listened to his address in the Dáil, it was frustration that he was unable to achieve what he had set out to achieve. You asked the question about Charlie McConnell. He's worked really hard. There's little doubt that the scheme that's there now is considerably better than the one that was there previously. It might be, but it doesn't have the support it, of the majority it, it, people who are affected there's, by there's, there's a lot of people who feel it doesn't reach the threshold that they want. There are some people who are happy with it. I feel, based on, on talking to Charlie and others, that he feels that it's as far as he could have gotten it. And it was either that or the previous scheme. And from that perspective, it is, it's enhanced from his perspective. Um, and, you know, hopefully it will meet the needs uh, of, of others. There are some people who clearly feel that it won't. Uh, just very, very briefly, very, I'll Gary. I'll tell you what the most satisfactory with this evening was the Micah families in the doll Gallery crying as the doll was being read out. This is serious implications for people's lives and that was the saddest aspect of tonight. 
All right, uh, we leave that story there. I want to move on uh, to the Public Accounts Committee, uh, Kevin Doyle. They issued their report looking at uh, funding into RTE, among other issues. What exactly did that report say when it was published? Well, they wanted to hurry. The, the Future of Media Commission has been working in the background for some time and the PAC effectively want that report to come out because we forever get lost, I think, in a conversation around the TV licence fee. And should revenue collect it or should on post collect it and should it be raised or should it be not? Um, and I think um, really what the government has committed to all along is the future of Media Commission. And nobody, be it the PAC or the, 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 the government, can really come up with the answers for the future of media until that is published. Um, and we'll hopefully get it in the coming weeks. Um, and then I think everything that has gone heretofore will be based around that report. And I suppose those of us in the media who have a very big self-interest in that have a lot of hopes for what will be in it, but also a lot of scepticism about what won't be in it. Okay, in terms of the Public Accounts Committee report, because we do have that, we have taken side of that, they seem to be saying that RTE need to decrease the reliance on state funding and sort of stand on their own two feet. That seemed to be essentially what they were saying, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's a difficult one because RTE, there is this question that RTE, and we hear it time and time again, and every so often they're at various Oireachtas committees uh, asking for the TV licence fee to be increased or asking for the collection rates to be increased because they are, in fairness, losing out on millions every year because the amount of TV licenses are, that are not actually being paid by people. But I think what the politicians on PAC are saying is you need to broaden your remit. You can't look to the government every time you face a financial crisis. And I suppose... And you can't uh, look to this state funding all of the time, yeah, this licence fee funding. It can't simply be a question of we're running short again this year. Um, but that opens up all sorts of questions then around the commercial funding, around staffing and around what I suppose is public service broadcasting or what else is RTE mm. spending money on. Uh, we did uh, invite Dee Forbes, the MD from RTE, onto the programme, but she declined. But they did send in a statement uh, to say that RTE will give due consideration to the findings in the coming days and will be liaising further with the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gilder, Sport and Media in terms of the specific information uh, requested. Because I think they did ask them to go away and look at how they could perhaps create other revenue. Gary, do you agree that they need less state funding? Less state funding? Not too sure in that regard, but what we do need to see is the report. The report has been sitting on the ministers and the Taoiseach's desk since last November. So we can't actually make any decisions or determinations until we see this Okay, report. but based just on this Public Accounts Committee report, do the you public, agree or disagree with them? No, the Public Accounts Committee were also very clear that they need to see the future of, of Media Commission's report so they can make final determinations on it. Now, RTE, they asked RTE very simple questions. What's the alternative forms of resin, revenue raising mechanisms you can approach? And RTE didn't seem to have any response to that. I think that's a very legitimate question to ask in terms of the quality of what's been offered from example say the RG player there's huge levels of criticism but also what can be achieved by enhancing that. And they're the type of kind of revenue raisers that we've been asking RTE to consider. That hasn't come back but most importantly is that future media commission report needs but to be published. how do you think public service broadcasting should be funded in this country? Well We've commissioned a report that costs 420. Okay, but what is this? I know that I know no, we've commissioned this report. No, but this but is. What is, what is the Social Democrats' well, position on this? No, we've been very clear. Catching more, we spoke in the pack today. Also, we need to see the report. This report costs. So, in terms so of you don't have a position on this. Oh, You'll no. just wait and see what the report says. No, and then consider what the findings are of the report. This report cost us four hundred twenty-two thousand euro as of okay. last November. But this is very All right. important. Okay, but there's not they a clear Social Democrats' position They have forty-nine recommendations in it that here, we haven't Harry. seen. Yeah, but the 49 recommendations in this report... All right, we and we're going to get to the report in a second. I just want to go to somebody who does have a very clear position. Sorry to sure. cut across you, uh, Gary, but I'm tight for time here. Uh, sorry for coming on air. I spoke to News Talk broadcaster Kira Kelly for her reaction. Absolutely, we need public service broadcasting. Uh, I don't think anyone wants to go the way of America, where news is biased, news is not objective, and news is largely paid for. And when news is paid for, it becomes little short of propaganda. So I am a great advocate for public service broadcasting, but that doesn't necessarily mean that RTE doesn't need reform. Um, I do believe that RTE in the main does a very good job, but I think the model of broadcasting that RTE uses is probably broken. And, and unfortunately, that's similar for Virgin. I live in a house of young adults. No one watches terrestrial television. Um, I think sport, I think news, I think current affairs will become what terrestrial television is about and most other things will be streamed. Um, and I think RTE, our state broadcaster, no more than anybody else in any other country, 
need to take account of that and need to monetize digital and need to monetize social media in a way that they're not currently, because we cannot expect people to pay for a service that they don't use. But we do need public service broadcasting, but we need to get cleverer with it. If we do need public service broadcasting, then I'm interested on how you think, as somebody who works for a commercial station in News Talk, how you think that should be funded. Well, I actually think News Talk, no more than yourself on The Tonight Show, are public service broadcasting. We try and be objective. We try and bring people fact-based, evidence-based news and information. So I think the fact that that we don't get any kind of funding is probably unfair. I think RTE getting funding that they use for things like, and I mean this in no disrespect to the good people who work there, for 2FM, when commercial stations like Today FM do it as well, if not better. I don't want to kind of get into that. But, but we don't need to spend taxpayers' money providing a music station. We do need to spend taxpayers' money providing public service. Kira Kelly there from News Talk. And just to be clear, Virgin Media's uh, position is that RTE One, Radio One and RTE News should be run on public funding and not advertisers. That was part of the submission that we made to the uh, Future of Media Commission. Where is that report, Timmy Dooley? What's the holdup? Yeah, my understanding is that both the Taoiseach and the Minister Martin have it. Uh, they have a commitment to bring it to government before the end of this term, which is next week, uh, and that it will be published thereafter. My view on it, if you want it, is quite simply, if you believe in public service broadcasting, you have to pay for it. Um, I produced a policy paper when I was Fianna Fáil's opposition spokesperson in this area, and I was quite clear on it. I felt that there should have been a broadcasting charge for every home uh, to support public service uh, media. So not a household charge? A household charge, okay. but not just RTE. I think public service broadcasting is wider. I think Virgin, I think News Talk, and I think local stations should also uh, be provided with uh, and resourced in a manner that would recognise that what they do is of a public service as well. Uh, I think you need to establish... Would you wait in that beyond just broadcasters? Yes, but I, did, I also did a paper on that which talked about the print media, which Kevin will be familiar with, and I discussed with all the titles at the time. And I felt the way to fund support for that sector uh, was to put a levy on the advertising that went on to the social media platforms. Because quite frankly, uh, heretofore, both broadcasting and print was funded largely through the licence fee and in the case of those that weren't, uh, provided through advertising. The advertising has shifted completely. Uh, they're getting value now on uh, social media platforms. And I think there should have been okay. a way to take money from that particular thing to protect right. um, traditional media, which quite frankly is such an important part of our democratic okay. uh, institutions. We'll discuss that in more detail when that Future of Media Commission report is published Look next week, as uh, Timmy promises. We're going to leave it there. My thanks to Kevin, Timmy and Gary. After the break, father and son, Jared and Patrick Flood, share their story in their battle against obesity.
Now, childhood obesity is an issue affecting many children in Ireland and for families who struggle to find access to services. Jared and Patrick Flood are one family who sought help. At the age of just eight, schoolboy Patrick was diagnosed with high cholesterol and elevated blood pressure. Well, a little earlier, Claire Brock met Jared and Patrick at their home in Dublin. As a parent, you, you, you just you want to do everything there and then to change it. You know, and, and you know, like there's a, there's a journey ahead of you, there's a road ahead of you, but just got the fright of her life, for Patrick's sake. And you just, as you said, you don't expect an eight-year-old to come back with cholesterol and elevated blood pressure. It's, it's just not, you know, you just don't expect it. So, Jared, what then did you do with that information? We went to our local GP and then she put us on a, a, a programme, a clinic for, for weight loss for kids. But then the pandemic hit and it was all on Zoom. No one-to-ones, didn't go into the clinic. So it, it didn't really work. And did you notice, Jared, in terms of Patrick's diet that he had been eating more and eating more regularly? Was that something that you were concerned about before you went for those blood tests? Yeah, there was a, a few surprises along the way, finding wrappers in very unusual places and a couple of red flags came up around eating in, locking the door and stuff like that. Was that something that you were aware of yourself, that you were hiding um, your eating from others? Yeah, um, I did that most of the time. I thought I ate a bit too much before we started this and like didn't tell people what I was eating and stuff like that. And you decided then coming out of the pandemic that you were going to do something about this, but you were actually going to do it together. Um, and because of your own health concerns? Yes, definitely. I didn't want to be a hypocrite and go, you know, having a burger in your hand on the sidelines and saying to Patrick, oh, no, no white bread or, you know, it's, it's not fair. So I said, look, I'll go on this journey with you. We'll do it together because I needed to. I, I was type 2 diabetes and just a typical Irish male. I was like, that'll be grand. I'll just take the tablets. I'll be fine. Have you changed your idea about what's healthy, what's good for your body? And, and what's not so healthy. I usually look on like a back of a chocolate bar and see how many calories and sugars and carbohydrates and all in it. Where when I was like two years ago, I, before I started this, I never looked at any of that. What is it that, that makes this so important? Usually in school we do some runs and I, I'll see my friends zooming off and being really fast. And I just thought if I try this, maybe I could someday be as fast as them and all. And in my soccer, when I play, loads of people are running past me, whereas I think if I do this, I can run and like tackle them. Yeah, we're seeing results, clothes are fitting again and, you know, energy levels. And the one thing about Patrick, the one thing I noticed for you, if you don't mind me saying, yeah. When he's playing sports now, he, he you used to be substituted, do you remember? Because yeah. you get tired and now he's playing for the full hour, he's got his game and he's on the pitch for the hour and the energy levels are high and that's great. You and Patrick got the support you needed. You also went um, yourselves to find a private clinic. Do you think the services are there to help people? Yeah, they haven't really scratched the surface. Um, and it was... I think when he first went to, to during the pandemic, I, we were even like, if you were looking on the internet for to do some research to find, there wasn't a lot of information out there. You know, you get your standard pamphlet and your food pyramid and stuff, but it, it goes further than that. There's talk about banning um, ads for junk food and, you know, cutting out vending machines and things like that in schools. Um, do you find it difficult when you see those ads uh, for chocolate and other things like that. Yeah, because I always see like big billboards and stuff like that and ads on the TV where it says like, get this chocolate bar and you'll get another one free. Or... So how does it make you feel then when you see those ads? Well, it feels like I just want to buy them and eat them and like don't see how much I eat and just eat them, that's pretty much. In a way, it's a battle for you as well, isn't it, as a parent, you know, to shield Patrick away from that advertising, from all that marketing so strong out there. It's myself as well. You know, one advertisement, you're like, oh, that looks nice. But now just a new way of thinking. And doing it with Patrick, there hasn't been a lot of shielding, just we're doing it together and we just make the choices together and, and we're a pretty good team.
Jared and Patrick Flood speaking to Claire Brock a little earlier today. Well, for more on this discussion, I'm joined by Professor Donal O'Shea and Dr. Ava Orsborn. You're both very welcome to the programme. Uh, Donal, how common is uh, Patrick's story? Is it becoming more and more common? Is it becoming more severe? Yeah, I mean, you say joining us for more discussion. You could just replay that um, that interview. I mean, that's amazing. That captures almost everything you need to hear about uh, the situation we're in and how to maybe map a way out of it. Uh, the recent data suggests that more children are becoming more overweight and uh, more severely obese at a younger age. Uh, if you take the UK data, uh, and just today published in the American Journal of Pediatrics, the US data, that's very clear. And we tend to track very closely with the UK figures. Uh, so and younger we know, than eight, Patrick's was eight years of age, younger than that? Absolutely younger than that. Uh, it's been seen in five-year-olds and three-year-olds. And, uh, you know, that's a massive challenge for our health system now and uh, into the future. What are the long-term implications of being obese at a young age? So if, if you have obesity at a young age, you have all of the early cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, so they're the, the blood pressure, the cholesterol, uh, the high insulin, the blood sugar doesn't go up, but you have high insulin levels. And that sets the scene for premature uh, cardiovascular disease. And we also know for early uh, cancers. Uh, Dr. Ava, you treated um, Patrick uh, and Jared. I'm wondering, is it more difficult or is it easier to deal with a child who is trying to tackle uh, obesity than an adult? Obviously, I'm dealing with people who want to do it. And when it's a parent and child doing it as a team, it's always easier. Now, we have been doing this for the last 15 years and we get very good results. But obviously, we see them on a weekly basis. We give them exact, specific advice. You know, they are monitored, you know, it's a friendly environment. So obviously there's a bias there in the study group because these people can also afford this private, you know, service. Um, it's extremely rewarding, um, but I have to say I can't understand why the government can't put in practice what I do privately. Because I think that long term... Because it is expensive, isn't it, for somebody to go privately? Yeah, but what is expensive is if 10% of health budget is spent on type 2 diabetes treatment, which is totally connected to overweight and obesity. And that's how many? 40 billion a year? Yeah. And this is just, I think, the medical cost. We're not even talking about the collateral cost of, of people's, you know, I don't know how these things, figures are, are counted. We are now talking about young children who are basically going to the workforce already metabolically sick because, like Donald was saying, this, you know, happens already silently. And I would say that one thing is the physical impact, but it's the psychological, these children have a lower self-confidence. Now, in Patrick's and, and uh, Gerard's case, you know, they have absolutely beautiful, you know, father, you know, uh, son relationship, and it's absolutely wonderful to see it. But like that, you know, I said to Gerard, you know, there's no point here trying to teach Patrick if you are not the example, because children do what parents do as an example. There's no point talking. It's actually your example, what you do, how you respect your body. And while yeah, I'm not particularly fond of this body positivity movement, because I think we are not talking about how somebody looks. We are talking about how the body functions and what is going to give you in years to come. Because at the end of the day, it's a vehicle that we have to move from one place to another and do functions. And if that is metabolically sick, we are going to get the cardiovascular disease, the type 2 diabetes. I see people with type 2 diabetes with ulcers in their legs, which are basically all could have been avoided. And this because the government is not giving specific advice. We are still following the stupid, un-old-fashioned food pyramid where we're advising people to eat high content of carbohydrates. There is a glass of orange juice on the bottom of the food pyramid. There is no specific advice. The way yeah, to go program from HSC, which is there for children to lose weight, is not even trying to make children to lose weight. It's actually trying to maintain the obesity level, hoping that children will grow out of the obesity. And I think these are wrong things. Assessment? No, I mean, I, I don't agree with that. What I do agree with is that we need access to uh, treatment services for children who have uh, severe and complex obesity. Uh, Minister Donnelly and uh, Paul Reid have both uh, made this a priority to actually 
operationalise the model of care for obesity in children. Because so, if you are a parent watching this evening, I'm wondering, and you go into your GP and you are really concerned about uh, your child uh, and uh, an obesity issue, what services are made available to you? Yeah, so at the moment they're, they're limited and they're being developed, but there is a plan for those now to be uh, grown and to, be, to have over the next three to five years a, a national reach. You could say it's too late because I have been arguing for this for the last 20 years, but the point is we're, we're getting them now. Uh, it's a major priority for both the Minister for Health and uh, the HSE. Uh, and how many people do you think are on a waiting list for that service? Well, at the moment, when you don't really have a service, it's hard to quantify the waiting list. The waiting list for Way to Go, which is an effective, evidence-based and proven to be I see a lot service. of people who haven't managed to okay. get anywhere with that programme. And I'm sometimes wondering who is actually checking these, that there's actually, we are spending the money in programmes that are actually getting some results. The and latest, I obviously see the people oh, who didn't get results. The latest data for the Way to Go programme has just been published. It's effective, it's evidence-based, the science has moved on, your rhetoric hasn't, and that's okay. But what I'm here to talk about is a commitment now at long last to the development of uh, services for children, uh, which will need to include obesity surgery for adolescents. Uh, and CHI have committed to developing that service starting later this year. What about starting prevention and starting to weigh children at schools and actually monitoring, that's, that's, pre doing the prevention? We were talking about this 20 yeah. years ago with you when we were doing a research together. That's right. And we were saying we in, knew the figures then. This was 2001, now it's 2022. What has been done in the last 20 years? Okay, we'll just let Donald uh, respond yeah, to that. Not enough. Not but enough. But finally, not finally, we are operationalising a model of care that includes the prevention piece you're talking about, a Public Health Obesity Act, which will address the advertising. I mean, that came very, through very which strongly. Which Patrick mentioned there. I mean, it in is... In such honest childhood language. Exactly. And, and I mean, you know, those ads are coming up on Snapchat, on Instagram. They're coming digitally, not just billboards. And they need to be tackled. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but thank you both for coming into us this evening. And my thanks to uh, all of my guests from the late team here on The Tonight Show. Good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.